If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of John Brown. In 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act was creating havoc in the North. Slave catchers from the South would ride up North, see a strong black man that may or may not have been an escaped slave. They would capture him and take him to the South. John Brown was not happy about this at all, so he formed a group called the League of Gileadites. Those men protected the area, and during that time, not one person was taken back into slavery from Springfield. It wasn't always pretty, but John Brown got things done. In this episode, you'll hear about a time called Bloody Kansas and the events that pushed John over the edge, leading him to attack his adversaries with a broadsword. Buckle up. But it also made the abolitionist cause a little different than it had been. Prior to that, abolitionists had believed that if you talked about how bad slavery was, you could convince people if they heard it often enough through pamphlets and publications and magazines and lectures how evil slavery was that eventually slavery would end. And they started thinking because of the, the Compromise of 1850, as it was called, that maybe they'd have to do more than talk because slavery was getting stronger every single day. And then four years later, in 1854, Stephen Douglas, senator from Illinois, wrote his Kansas-Nebraska Act to open up the territories out west to settlement. The territories west of Missouri, the rest of the Louisiana Purchase, and all the new territory that had been taken during the Mexican-American War that had been taken from Mexico that increased the potential area of slavery by hundreds of tens of hundreds of thousands of square miles. And how was the government going to deal with all these new territories? The Missouri Compromise had put slavery below the line of latitude of the southern border of Missouri, but would that be extended across the rest of the continent? How would they be dealt with? And Douglas wrote in his Kansas-Nebraska Act how that would be dealt with. It would be dealt with through popular sovereignty, which meant that the residents of those territories would be able to vote on how that territory would come into the Union, whether as a free state that did not allow slavery or as a slave state that allowed slavery. Suddenly, that Missouri Compromise was no longer in effect. There was no longer any barrier for any territory to become a slave state from the northern boundaries to the southern boundaries of the nation by simply a vote, whoever could get there with the most people, and that was the strongest slavery had been really ever. Congress was no longer in charge of what state came into the Union and whether that state would be a slave state or a free state. That would be up to the people popular sovereignty, and that meant trouble. That meant the two sides butting heads. And that's exactly what happened in Kansas. 
because Kansas was the first territory to be organized out of that. And that became, Kansas became target of both sides to come in and decide the issue. Because as Kansas went, everyone thought the rest of the nation would go. Kansas the was the battleground state. Kansas became, it was a territory. Kansas became the battleground territory for how those new territories would become, whether America would become almost completely a slave state or whether it would somehow be part slave and part free. And that was what caused bleeding Kansas. Kansas became a bloody battleground over the next couple of years, almost this, immediately. Mr. Brown, this is where I get really confused. And I'm going to skip a little bit ahead, and then hopefully we can come back and explain it, because everything that I didn't understand you have made very clear so far. But this whole bloody Kansas, my understanding is that there was an episode where you and several of your men yanked people out of their cabins and with broadswords cut them up into pieces and then shot them in the heart and left them for dead in front of their families and went from cabin to cabin and did this. Now, it was in retaliation, but and I want you to explain this, but did that happen? Did you cut people up with broadswords? My men executed several slaves, pro-slavery people, with broadswords. They did not hack them up. But let me get back to the beginning of this, because okay, that's at the end of the story. Yes. Kansas became an extremely bloody place. And when I got to Kansas, I came out because five of my sons had come out to Kansas early in 1855 to settle and to vote at the time for Kansas to become a free territory and then a free state. They got here just about the time that the territorial election was held to pick the territorial legislature to choose whether Kansas would be a free territory or a slave territory. On that date of that election, March 30th, 1855, thousands of pro-slavery Missourians poured over the border. They did not live in the territory, but they voted. They were allowed to vote. They didn't let many free state settlers vote. And so by the time the votes were all counted, about 2,700 legal residents, over 6,000 votes were cast. <laughs> That's absurd. Many, most of them were illegal votes, but the federal government allowed that to stand. Wow. And the bogus legislature, as the Free Staters called it, formed and began enacting laws to make Kansas a slave territory. The federal government, the president, wanted Kansas to be a slave state because they were fearful if Kansas did not become a slave state, that the pro slavery South would secede from the Union. Is that, that was right? their fear. That was always their fear. Every time the issue of slavery came up before Congress, there was a compromise because they, the Southern senators and congressmen always threatened secession if they didn't get their way. It was always the ultimatum, and so the federal government assisted the pro-slavery cause in Kansas. Every federal employee in Kansas, the judges, the marshals, every, everyone was pro-slavery. There was no free state person in Kansas of any rank, and they worked actively against the free state cause. So when us free state men who were in Kansas, we were fighting an uphill battle, not only against the pro-slavery border ruffians who would cut your throat 
if they found you alone, but also the federal government, even the military. The military tried to not take sides, but they had orders, so they had to do certain things regardless of whether they thought they were what they should be doing. So the bleeding Kansas became even bloodier as an example of what would happen. Thomas Barber, a free state man, was killed, gunned down by two pro-slavery men in 1855, in early December. He had just left Lawrence, the headquarters of the free state movement. Lawrence, that had, been surrounded, that had been surrounded for days by pro-slavery men who wanted to attack and burn it, but they didn't. The compromise had been formed, and everyone went home, because that was December, and it was a very cold winter. Barbara was leaving Lawrence, and he was accosted by two pro-slavery men who told him he had to come with them, and they said, he said, I didn't have to come with you, and they shot him dead, murdered him. I stood in the room in the Free State Hotel in Lawrence and watched that poor man's widow grieve over her husband's brittle body. And nothing happened to them. Nothing. They were well-known men. One was a federal Potawatomi Indian agent, and nothing happened. There was no arrest. There was no investigation. There was no trial. Wow. In January of 1858, a Free State man, there was a Free State and a pro-slavery militia near Leavenworth, Kansas Territory that had an altercation. This man, whose name was, last name was Brown, who was no relation to me, was taken prisoner during that altercation. He was tied up in the pro-slavery camp, and one of those pro-slavers took a hatchet and hacked Mr. Brown to death with it and dumped his barely living body on the stoop of his house, for, and his last words to his wife were, they have killed me. And that man was well known, the man with the hatchet, and nothing was done. Nothing. It's just unbelievable. It was, it was open season on free staters. You have to be losing and, your mind. And that was part of the run-up to what you had just asked the question about. But that wasn't everything. It got worse. May 21st, Lawrence, the headquarters of the free state movement, was attacked and sacked and burned by a large pro-slavery militia that had been brought into town by a United States marshal. And when he'd done what he was doing, he left town. The pro-slavery sheriff of Douglas County, Kansas Territory, took charge and proceeded to attack and defeat free staters in town. And They completely right sacked the whole town. Not all of it, but anything that could be attributed to the free state cause, any of the free state organizations, the New England Immigrant Aid Company that had brought free staters to Kansas, to Lawrence specifically, their headquarters was burned. The Free State Hotel that I had mentioned a few minutes ago was burned. And uh, the two free state newspapers were destroyed because they had been printing. They had been printing because of their, what they thought was their First Amendment right that Kansas should not be a slave state. But the territorial legislature had made that illegal. In Kansas at that time, you could not print in your newspaper that Kansas should not be a slave state. So the First Amendment did not exist in Kansas. What you're describing doesn't even sound like the United States. Kansas was not the United States in 1856. It was, I, I don't, I, it, it was, I did not even a word for it. It was a bloody battleground. Wow. That 
turned people radical. Okay. That turned honest, a law-abiding citizens, citizens who had to defend themselves and their cause any way they could. And we're still not up to what you were talking about, the killing. Charles Sumner, senator from Massachusetts, who was the only person in the Senate who spoke out against what was happening in Kansas, made a speech in front of the, the Senate. And he derided one particularly, one particular South Carolina senator, a relative of that senator named Preston Brooks, who was a South Carolina representative, came onto the floor of the United States Senate and nearly beat Sumner to death with his cane. On the Senate floor? On the Senate floor. And some of his pro-slavery colleagues kept everybody else back and cheered him on while he beat Sumner. Sumner was a hero of mine, and word got to, to us here in Kansas at about the same time as the Lawrence sacking. I heard that Lawrence was being attacked. I went up to Lawrence, but there was nothing I could do, so I left. And about that same time, I heard that Sumner, the only person in the Senate who was doing anything to keep the federal government from becoming absolutely pro-slavery, was probably dead. He didn't die, but it was a thought that he would. Everything was going pro-slavery, so something had to be done. Something had to be done. This is when it happened. And then, to top it all off, I got word from my half-sister, Florilla, who her and her husband were missionaries in the Osawatomi, Kansas Territory. That word had come from back east that my father had died. And I then found out that, this is hard, I then found out that some of our neighbors around Pottawatomie Creek, because that's where we were, we and my family and I, at our settlement, they called it Brown Station, some of our neighbors intended to come out one night and kill my family, and there was no one to turn to. We couldn't turn to the government because they were all pro-slavery. Who would we ask for help? Who could I ask for help? The only people we could help, the only people we had to help us, were ourselves. So on the night of the 24th and 25th of May, five pro-slavery men were pulled out of their beds at night and hacked to death. There was only one shot during that event. That's been called the Pottawatomie Massacre. The widow of one of those men described the leader of that event, of those men, as someone that looked like me. And I have been accused or given credit for, depending upon your outlook on that, as being the leader. I have never admitted and I have never denied that I was there and I shall go to my grave not doing that. But I will tell you something had to happen. Something had to happen to show the pro-slavery cause in Kansas that they could not kill men, burn their houses, destroy their towns with impunity, that actions had consequences and something did happen that night. And Immediately after that, my name became associated with it, and there were pro-slavery men who wanted to get Brown for Potawatomi. One of those was a, a young Virginian named Henry Clay Pate, who had actually helped back and burn Lawrence. And he got himself appointed as a deputy U.S. marshal to go get old Brown. He, uh, he was based in Westport, Missouri, and he went up there and deputized a young pro-slavery militia up there to be his posse. 
and then he began scouring the countryside for me. He was doing the same thing the pro-slavery men were doing. When they came up on a free state homestead, they ransacked it and tried to drive everybody out of the territory, not doing exactly what you'd think a government official would do, but then, like I said, that's what government officials were doing. And why, he, why isn't the government stepping in here and creating some order? Because the government was okay? doing it. <laughs> because they wanted Kansas, they were afraid if Kansas didn't become a ter- state, a yeah. slave state. It goes secession. back to secession, just what you were secession saying. Secession was the boogeyman. Secession was that thing out there in the dark that everyone was afraid of. And, and after that, Pate was looking for me, and he captured two of my sons, who had not been at Potawatomi, but he didn't care. He thought they were guilty. He said they were brown, so they were liars. I, wanted Pate, I had been wanting to stop Pate from his marauding around the territory, but then I also wanted to get my sons back. So I was looking for Pate. Pate was looking for me. I did not know that he had turned my sons over to the military after treating them so roughly, dragging them for miles behind their wagons, things like that that no decent man would even think of. Pate drug your boys behind doing. a wagon? Yes. They tied their hands behind them, and if they couldn't walk fast enough, they were drugged a distance. He's a bad so guy. So this is Pate and his men, yes, and they were after me, and I was after them. And then on the morning... Of the 1st of June, 1856, which was a Sunday, Pate and his men were camped in an area along the Santa Fe Trail, a campground that was called Black Jack Spring. It was about 17 miles southeast of the town of Lawrence that they'd helped sack and burn not that long before. And several of them went over to Prairie City, a free state town about three miles west of Black Jack Springs, to do what they'd been doing. Only five of them went. They didn't expect any trouble. They found trouble there. They found me and about 25 other free state men in the town. They tried to get away. Two of them made it. Three of them didn't. They got back eventually to Pate and his men at Blackjack Springs. They said, free state assassins are in Prairie City, and they're probably heading over here. So Pate brought his wagons down off the high prairie where they had been, and they put them in a circle near the creeks. The creeks in that area form a capital Y, and so Pate put his wagons along the, the eastern arm of that Y, bedded his men down, and put sentries out to the west to watch. Now those, those 25 men that I was in charge of in Prairie City, actually, I wasn't in charge of all of them. I was in charge of about half of them. The other one were a, a militia under Sam Shore. Sam and I planned what to do. We found out from those three boys that we had captured where Pate and his men were, so we decided to wait until it got dark to sneak up on them. So it got dark, and then we moved those three miles overnight, over the night of the 1st and the 2nd of June. That was the night of the new moon, so it was dark. And we crossed open prairie. And when you cross open prairie trying to sneak up on someone, you don't carry a lantern. So we were going only by what little starlight there was. And this was rough terrain we were crossing. You had to be very careful. And uh, it took us all night. I wanted to be there before first light and surround Pate Camp. And as soon as you could see, to strike and take them with no bloodshed. But it was already getting light as we approached from the west. And I knew that we probably were not going to be able to get there without some battle occurring. I started thinking about one of my heroes at that time, George Washington, because George Washington had a similar 
occurrence in his life. When he'd crossed the Delaware, he intended to be in Trenton before dawn, and it took him a long time to get there. It was more than first light before they got to Trenton, and had the Hessians not been drunk from celebrating Christmas the day before, it would have gone differently. But Washington won the Battle of Trenton. Washington was, was one of your heroes? Washington was one of my heroes. He was a military leader. And I had studied military tactics and military doctrine for years and years. And I knew that he was a great leader. The fact that he was a slave owner, I did not like. But the fact that he was a military genius, I did like. And so I was wondering if this event that we were going to have that morning, that June 2nd morning, was going to turn into something like that. Pro-slavers had the reputation of being very fond of the drink. And I was hoping that maybe they were all intoxicated, but a shot rang out, and I knew that wasn't our men, and it turned out it was one of the sentries, and they fell back, and we advanced. Shore's men were first to engage Pate's men. Pate's men were strong enough, they and were in such a good position, they drove Shore's men back over the crest of the hill. Pate and his men thought they'd won a victory, and they began cheering, and as soon as they began cheering, my men, who had been able to sneak very close to Pate's men, we were lined up along the other branch of that capital Y of those creeks. We opened up on Pate's men and eventually drove him back. He had to come down into the creek to not be shot. And we fought the battle across a very narrow stretch of land for about three hours. By the end of about three hours, Pate had still about 20 men. He started with about 35 or 40 of those 25 men that we started with, we were down to about eight or nine. Sam Shore himself had told me he was hungry and he was going to go off for breakfast and had left the battle. And I knew that I knew that Pate would soon figure out he was not outnumbered because I had tricked him into thinking he was outnumbered. But <laughs> I figured he wasn't going to be able to be a fool for much longer. So I had my men go up on the high ground and began shooting his horses and his mules so that he'd know he would be stranded in territory that he had been making a very big nuisance of himself. He thought he saw on the horizon a dust cloud coming from the direction of Lawrence, the town he'd helped sack and burn, and he was very concerned that there were free state reinforcements coming to help, and that if these men whose town he had helped partially destroy came here and he was still fighting, well, that he would not be treated very well with them, and he might not survive that day. He discussed it with his lieutenant, whose name was Brockett, about what they should do. And then something happened that convinced them of what they needed to do. One of my sons was Frederick, who was out in Kansas. He had seizure disorders. He had debilitating headaches, and I didn't want him on the firing line. So I had stationed him up behind the crest of the hill, tending to our horses. And then not too long after Pate's horses began dying, I heard a commotion and looked up the creek, and there was Frederick on one of his brother's horses riding up down into the creek and then up into the little hillside that was between Pate and my men and then turned and rode right down between the two lines of men that had just been firing at each other, waving his saber over his head, shouting, Father, we have them surrounded and can cut off their lines of communication and rode off. Pate thought he was the vanguard of those free state reinforcements, and he put up a white flag. We stopped fighting. Eventually, he came over, fronting me, 
He said later that he didn't know he was up against John Brown or he never would have tried to talk. <laughs> he came over, began ordering me to put away my weapon, that he was a deputy U.S. Marshal and he had a warrant for the arrest of certain persons, me, the man standing in front of him, and that I had to do this and I must do that and I was ordered to do that. He was not talking like someone who put up a white flag to discuss terms. So I pulled out my pistol and I cocked it and I pointed it at his chest and I said, you are my prisoner. He did not accept that. He argued that I was not being fair to the rules of war. I could not take a prisoner under a white flag. On and on. And while he did that, several of my men repositioned themselves. So when he decided to go back to his men, he couldn't. And he reluctantly succumbed to be my prisoner. He later wrote, I didn't surrender. That man tricked me. I'd like to tell him, all's fair in love and war. That's the rule of life. Wow. What a story. But of course, that didn't end everything. It wasn't the last time I'd see Pate either, but I'll, I won't go into that right now. We took Pate and his men hostage or prisoner. We eventually were forced by the military to release them before we could get my sons back. Pate had promised me in exchange for him and his lieutenant he could get my sons back. That's and then uh, back. I released the men and the, a troop of dragoons under orders of the president had forced me to release Peyton and his men. So what happened next? One, one more story about Kansas that I think is important. Frederick, my son, on the 30th of August, he was with his, slept the night with his aunt and uncle and was out walking a, a mile or so west of Osawatomie. I and the rest of my men were in Osawatomie. When a group of men rode up, these men turned out to be the vanguard of a large pro-slavery army that was going to attack my men and destroy the free state town of Osawatomie. One of them, one of these men in this vanguard was Martin White, a minister who hated black folks and hated the Browns because we liked the black folks. And he saw Frederick and he said, I know you and we are foes and gunned Frederick down, killed him dead, murdered him, unarmed Frederick. Wow. They then Just attacked us. And shot him. Shot at Psalm and shot him. Attacked him, attacked the town, attacked us, drove us out. They thought they'd killed me, but they didn't. I was able to, after they burned the town and left, I was able to retrieve Frederick and bury him in Osawatomie, where he lies to this day. And then after Osawatomie, I, I left Kansas. And I took with me Henry Claypate's Bowie knife that I, I took from him at Blackjack during his, what I call his surrender, he didn't say he surrendered, but when he we gave up, we both know the truth. We know yeah, I and uh, I took it with me and took it to a blacksmith in Connecticut and asked him to make a thousand copies of it and put them on the end of six foot poles. He said, "Why do you want a thousand pikes?" And I said, "I'm going to take them back to Kansas and arm the free state settlers there," which was a lie. I do not like to lie, but that was a lie. I intended to use them in my efforts to free slaves, to end slavery. A number of them went with me to Harper's Ferry. They were sitting outside of town. We were going to arm the freedom seekers, the, those of my black brothers and sisters who joined our cause, and send them up to the, into the mountains with those pikes. But that, as we know, did not work out. However, 
while I have been sitting here in jail, not too long ago, actually I guess it was about nine days ago, the 21st of November. As I said before, people were allowed to come in and talk to me, and who should come in but Henry Claypate came in to my jail and started asking me where was his Bowie knife. He wanted it back, and I told him I didn't have it, that I had given it away, and I had more important things to do than to discuss the Bowie knife that he had taken to Blackjack and I had taken from him there. He wanted his knife back. He came to see you in jail like they just give you the storage chest. He wanted where it was so he could go get it. Yes. So he was, only, he was not that old. He was 27, I guess. But anyway, I was very amused by that. That, yeah, that lightened it, my spirit. I understand a, quite a few people visited you. And uh, I'm not 100% sure if you know about this, but I'm going to ask. Two days from now, when you, are, when you hang... There is a man that is very significant in our time that is probably nobody in your time. You may not even know about this, but came, stole a soldier's outfit so that he could, because only soldiers were allowed to watch you hang, the public wasn't there. He stole a soldier's outfit and then he went in to watch you hang because he was so against your cause. And that man's name was John Wilkes Booth. Did he visit you when yes, you were in jail? Yes. Do you know that name? Booth, that sounds familiar. Yeah, yes. A young man wearing a gray uniform came in to see me a day or two ago. He said he'd come from Richmond. With his militia was called the Richmond Grays. Or I believe that's what he called me. And he said he was, the, he was a member of one of the famous acting families in America. I had heard of the Booth. So I assumed that he was one of the younger members of that. I hadn't heard of him particularly. His brothers are much more well-known than I imagine he is. But yes, if you've heard that, and that, that was true, yes, Mr. John Wilkes Booth did come and pay me a call in the jail cell. It's a shame of all the people that, assuming that you were at the event with the, with the broadswords where people were attacked, it is a shame that John Wilkes Booth didn't see one of those broadswords because he's a... He ended up being a bad man in history, that's for sure. Well, Speaking unfortunately, of, he's probably not the only person who will be at my hanging. I imagine there will be a number of people there who will carry on the slavery cause into the future. I hope there are some there who will not. I hope some will be inspired by what I do to join the cause against slavery. Oh, there's no question about that. There's, uh, there's so many that join the cause and get inspired. That happens for sure. When you were trapped inside the, the engine, engine house... house the Marines came in to capture you, and there was a... I'm wondering if you know this general's name. You probably don't. They're not general, but this soldier's name. There was a soldier there by the name of Robert E. Lee that was responsible for... Oh, capture. yes, yes. He Do you know this command. man? He, yeah, he was in command of the, of the Marines. My understanding was that he, he had been in Washington for a number of months, so long that he actually didn't have his uniform with him. So he was... He had his civilian clothes and that... This is what I heard from people discussing. Once the militia attacked us and forced us back and into the engine house, that the president, Buchanan, had ordered this officer, Lee, colonel, I think he was a colonel, to go to the Marine barracks, even though he was an Army colonel, to go to the Marine barracks and get a troop of Marines and come down and take over from the militia at Harper's Ferry. And I believe that's what he did. And he, so he was directing the Marines. As I recall, one of my men, my men saw this man in a uniform and he said, 
That man looks like he's in charge, and he leveled his rifle at this man and, to shoot him. And I knocked the rifle over, and I said, we're not shooting civilians here, not, any, not unarmed ones especially. And so it turns out I think that was that Colonel Lee. So I, must, I think I might have kept him from being seriously injured. But yeah, he was in charge of the, of the Marines. And just prior to them assaulting us, a young man came down under a white flag. And as he got closer, I recognized him. I recognized him as Lieutenant Jeb Stewart. See, I'd met Jeb Stewart in Kansas because he had been with that troop of dragoons that had come down from Fort Leavenworth after Blackjack to force us to release Pate and his men. So I knew this young man. And uh, he came down with a white flag and pounded on the door, and I opened the door to the engine house. And he looked at me and he said, You're not Isaac Smith. That was the name I had been using, my assumed name there. He said, you're old Osawatomie Brown who gave us so much trouble in Kansas. Are you going to surrender? I said, no. He handed me Lee's surrender terms. He said, these are his terms. You had better. I read them. I said, the only terms I will surrender under is if I, my men and I are guaranteed safe passage out of town. He said, that is impossible. I said, that we cannot discuss anymore. He went back up. He waved his hat. That was the signal. The Marines charged with fixed bayonets, but no cartridges loaded because they did not want to accidentally shoot the hostages. They, they attacked the outside of the house. We had it barricaded, of course. It was the folding doors that the fire trucks went in and out. The engine house. The engine house. They eventually bashed in a part of the door and started coming in. One young Marine was unfortunately shot and killed. Others got through there. Several of my men were killed. Several that were actually trying to surrender were killed. One man came at me especially. He had a saber in his hand, and he lunged at my middle. He hit the belt buckle that kept my sword at my side. And it turns out he had brought his ceremonial sword, not his war sword, and the blade broke. It did not enter my stomach. Instead, it broke. He then <laughs> took the handle and began beating me with it. And the stump of the blade cut my head, and he beat me into unconsciousness in the engine house. So uh, I don't know exactly what happened after that. I, uh, I came to. I was lying on the floor of a, in a building. I was covered. I had a, a bale of something under my head. And there were men all around me. As soon as they saw me, as soon as they saw I was conscious, they began peppering me with questions. One of them was a steward. What are you doing? This, that, this. Who helped you? On and on. Why did you do this? What are your plans? Is this an insurrection on? And I just, I told them, no, this is not an insurrection. What I intended this to be a larger version of what I had done in Kansas. They went, what did you do in Kansas? I said, you must have heard of it. In uh, December of 1858, I had been asked by a black man, a slave, to go into Missouri, free his family and others, that were about ready to be sold south. So I did. I went into Kansas on the night of the 20th of December. I went in from Kansas into Missouri on the night of the 20th of December. We assisted 11 enslaved men and women to free themselves. We escorted them into Kansas, eventually up through Kansas, near, near Garnett, Kansas, one of the women gave birth to a young freeborn son that they named John Brown Daniels in my honor. We moved through Lawrence to Topeka. 
up through the rest of Kansas into Nebraska. We crossed the Missouri River into Iowa, crossed Iowa. We were able to get accommodations in a boxcar on a train, which took us to Chicago. And there, a man named Alan Pinkerton, who worked for the railroad, got us a actual passenger car sealed up and were taken all the way to Detroit. And on the 12th of March, those 12 freedom seekers crossed the Detroit River into freedom, into Canada. And it it was from there that I went down to Maryland to begin planning the Harper's Ferry Raid. And I told them that was my intention. I intended not to kill pro-slavery men, but to raid and run the Underground Railroad and get more and more enslaved people free and build our army, our army of freedom. Not to kill as few people as we could, because it was not about blood. It was about freedom. I see that. No, I just, there's something that I think I just figured out, because as you keep discussing that, it is very clear that your goal is not to hurt people. It's just the opposite. You try to care for people that don't deserve it sometimes. And this Harper's Raid is the thing that people know most about you. And yet it appears that the media has blown this thing completely out of proportion for what you were trying to do. You were just trying to further the cause. And yet, even though it has been completely blown out of proportion for the size of it and maybe what your goals were, it is that same media that made it where what you did ends up being a spark to light the fuse that would create everything that would happen next so that there would be change. But the media blew this out of proportion. Is that what you're saying? I assume you're talking about the newspapers. Yes, the Uh, newspapers and reporters and such. I am certain that the ones in the the southern states, the states that allow slavery, will have nothing good to say about me. Probably never will. I am certain there are many in the north that probably will say the same thing because there are many pro-slavery and even pro-southern people who live in the north. But I am certain there are some newspapers who will print perhaps my side of it or side of the free state cause, of the freedom cause, of the anti-slavery cause. There are many in the North who are, if not abolitionists, who are no friends of slavery. I'm assuming that if there ever is a war that many of them will join the cause. I don't want to predict anything because I have enough to think about right now. Yeah, I need yeah. to get my life and my spirit in order in the next two days. Mary is coming tomorrow, I've been told. We're going to have a few hours together in the parlor of the warden's house, which I think is very nice, them. So we will be able to have a few hours together to say our goodbyes. I am looking forward to that. Did you write a new constitution for what oh, the world would that was part, like? Yes, when I was in Canada trying to organize the men to, to do what we were attempting at Harper's Ferry. Yes, it was the, the provisional constitution for the, the United States. Not to necessarily take the place of the current constitution, but the current constitution is so flawed because it allows slavery. This was an interim constitution during that transition period until the United States could correct the errors and end its approval of slavery and outlaw slavery forever. It was to govern my men and the provisional army that we would form and that would conduct the activities in the South to make slavery untenable 
to make slaves worthless as far as selling them, that slavery as an institution would just collapse of its own weight. And I don't know if that's going to work now. Obviously, the Lord has, did not wish that to happen, elsewise he would have given me the power to have it happen. But since that did not happen, I'm certain he has other ideas in mind that will come after me. It's interesting because these people that are pro-slavery, they would hear of finding this in your papers of this new constitution and they would probably hear that you're trying to start your own country or this is the ultimate sort of treason and it's not at all what it sounds like you're trying to do. You were just trying to say, hey, look, we need some adjustments so that people are treated fairly. The United States was a slave nation, period. The United States could not continue to be a slave nation. Things had to change and had to change drastically. The provisional constitution was not to be the constitution for the United States forever. It was provisional, meaning temporary, until the new free constitution. The constitution did not allow any one person, man, woman, child, black, white, or whatever, to have authority over another or be denigrated by others. When you were, before you were going to Harper's Ferry, I understand that you'd been speaking for, with Frederick Douglass for a long time. Yes, we, he was, he'd been my friend for a number of years, and I told him of my cause. I would talk about it. I know sometimes I, I think I perhaps over-talked about it. I mean, sometimes I think I saw him roll his eyes as if, John, not again. But <laughs> he was still a polite, a very polite man and my friend, and he would listen I tried to get him to join my cause. The last time, not the last time we met, but the time I pushed as much as I could was in a, a quarry in, in Pennsylvania. That is where I, I recruited one of my most faithful adherents, Shields Green. Shields Green was a black man who was free. He was a free black man. Some have said he was an escaped slave, but that's not what he told me. He told me he was a free man, but he had escaped from the South after the, uh, the Dred Scott decision had declared that black people in America had no rights that any white person had to abide by and that any black person could become, in effect, a slave simply if someone wanted him to be a slave. It was a terrible thing. So he wow. had left the South. But he came back into the South with Frederick, or he was with Frederick Douglass and was willing to go into the South and he heard what I said, and he heard my words. And when Frederick Douglass asked him if he wanted to leave with him, Shields Green said, no, I guess I'll go with the old man. And he came with me, and he became one of my men. And he fought with, alongside me at Harper's Ferry. And he sits with me in this jail, and he will hang for what he did. Shields Green is a brave man. He will hang along with me, not the same day. But he, I believe, is a much braver man than I am. He threw away everything. He threw away his freedom for his people. Just like Dangerfield Newby, the first black man to die at Harper's Ferry, threw away his freedom because he was free. But he was trying to buy his family that the owner would not sell him. So he joined my cause to free his family by ending slavery. Gosh. Those were brave men who were selfless you, and you died for others. 
you spent some time around some pretty extraordinary people. Is it true that you helped through the Underground Railroad and all your other efforts free as many as 2,500 slaves? That's the number I heard. I didn't bother counting. It was, it was not a goal. It was not a sport that I was keeping track. I did as much as I could. And not, it didn't matter as how many I freed. I was sorry that it was not more. I was sorry it was not more. I think you certainly did everything you could. Were you surprised when Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman were not going to join you on the raid? I was disappointed. I thought that Frederick would be able to attract many more of my black brothers and sisters to the cause. I was sure that Harriet Tubman would be the same. But seeing the outcome of it, I am glad they were not here. I am glad Frederick is not sitting in the cell with me. I am glad that Harriet is not sitting with me in the cell. They are alive and they can push the cause forward after I am no longer among the living. So I am not sad that they are not here. I had hoped they would be with me, but I'm not sad that they're not. Mr. Brown, your life and your contribution to what happens next, it's, I can't imagine what the world would look like had you not lived and had you not sacrificed so much of yourself and so much of your time and even your children for this cause. And I'm just so thankful for all your time today. I know that tomorrow is, or not tomorrow, but two days from now is the day that, that you will hang. Is there anything last that you would like to say about absolutely anything? As I said earlier, as one lives one's life, it seems to go back and forth. This thing happens and that thing happens. And you think this is a terrible thing to happen to you or you wish this had happened or you wish you had done things a different way. And so it seems as though you're walking a very crooked road. But when you get to the end, like I have, and you look back, you see that it wasn't a crooked road at all. It was a direct road from where you started to where you're at. And that everything that happened to you along the way made you, got you to where you are today. And if it had not happened in that particular way, that nuanced way, that what seemed to be unbelievable or why did this happen? The reason was to get you there. That is an important idea to look back and see how you got to where you are. I appreciate that very much. And I hope that your hanging two days from now is goes very quickly. You don't deserve any more struggle. Thank you very much. What I've done is not in vain. So, what do you think? Hero? Villain? Was he crazy? Or was he just the man that the enslaved people needed to fight for their freedom? It's easy to judge John Brown, but imagine that you lived in those new territories and your family went to the voting booth to express their opinion that those areas should be free. Then imagine your spouse or your child being brutally murdered because they wanted to vote. If there were no radical zealots like John Brown to be a counterweight to forces like that, then evil wins. As the saying by Edmund Burke goes, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. John Brown was a good man and he was not going to do nothing. Thank you for listening. And if you haven't subscribed to the show yet or told a friend about the Calling History podcast, now is the time. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history. <laughs>